Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Welcome to Blockworks. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you here, Lynn. You're one of my favorite macro analysts. We've been collaborating a lot over the years, and I cannot think of someone who I would rather have be my first interviewee uh, in my first interview here at Blockworks. Let's get right into it, Lynn. You have a view. You are you know, somewhat bearish on the dollar long term, not so much of a fan uh, of long-term treasury bonds. And meanwhile, you're very interested in uh, real assets, hard assets, real estate, gold, Bitcoin, commodities, uh, commodity producers, and those sorts of equities as well. Uh, what is your core macro thesis that underpins all of these views on assets? So overall, I, you know, I have a, a view towards the 2020s having higher average inflation than the 2010s, not necessarily in a straight line, but overall more, more inflationary, uh, you know, combined with you know, negative real yields, uh, and so I have a preference towards hard assets, scarce assets, productive assets that can include, you know, commodities, especially uh, that can include Bitcoin, that can include value stocks, you know, things that produce good cash flows and have reasonable valuations and have some of your pricing power. Uh, and so across the board, I like a, a variety of uh, productive and real assets uh, and I'm generally, you know, indirectly short fiat currencies. So after a whole decade, really, of economic stagnation, meaning pretty slow growth and, and various kind of financial bottlenecks forming in the system, that policymakers have been forced to stimulate pretty aggressively. And that might be touching off, you know, wage spiral, uh, combined with the fact that, you know, we've had a you know five to 10 years of underinvestment in natural resources globally, especially some areas more than others, uh, and combined with the fact that globalization uh, might have been, you know, peaking uh, and kind of reversing to some extent, which means that the, you know, a structural deflationary pressure that's been there for a while uh, is, is, you know, maybe flattening out and potentially even turning back a little bit towards the inflationary side. Mm. And Lynn, why do you think inflation will run so hot in the decades of the 2020s? Um, and, you know, what have you made of the surprisingly persistent rate of inflation this year, not just in the U.S., but abroad? I use the framework of the long-term debt cycle, which is you know when you when you build up a tremendous amount of debt in the system, as developed markets have over the past you know call it 40 years or more, uh, you know there's really little way out for policymakers other than to inflate, is essentially to run inflation higher than interest rates uh, for quite a long period of time. Uh, and so that environment tends to be very negative for currencies, uh, tends to result in inflation or stagflation in many cases. You're not, it's not necessarily the, the, you know, the quote unquote good type of inflation. It can be a rather challenging type of inflation at times, like you saw in the 40s and the 70s. Uh, and so I think we're entering that kind of decade. Uh, and, you know, that was my thesis going into this decade. And, we, you know, 2021 is really we're starting to see that play out. Uh, but I do think that, you know, looking back years from now, this is probably still somewhat the tip of the iceberg in terms of, of the inflationary challenges that are going to be present in this decade. Your thoughts on the long term debt cycle are just so interesting and extremely important. Let's suspend that for a moment. Let's get back to that at the end where we'll really get into the weeds on your thesis. But for now, let's talk about assets. So what sort of assets, if this inflationary wave is going to come for the next decade, what sort of assets do do people want to own? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it energy? And, you know, what do, what have you made of uh, Bitcoin's extreme overperformance relative to gold. So people have different areas of specialization. Uh, so, you know, some people might want to tilt their portfolios toward different types of real assets that they feel like they have a, a better grasp on. 
overall, I, I view Bitcoin as probably one of the biggest beneficiaries uh, of this decade. I view energy uh, and, and industrial commodities as another, uh, you know, kind of high conviction thesis of mine going forward. You know, precious metals, I'm also bullish on. They've obviously run into some headwinds. Uh, I think there's been an investor preference shift towards Bitcoin. Overall, essentially, you know, Bitcoin is, I describe it as kind of the combination of a tech stock with gold, right? So you have kind of the monetary properties uh, mixed with a network effect and just, you know, basically technology that has come along that hasn't existed prior to 2008 when it was invented. Uh, and so overall, I still think Bitcoin's total adjustable market probably, you know, can go a lot higher than it has now, even though, of course, there, there could be certain periods of time where it becomes overheated in a localized bubble. Mm. And are you more constructive on gold now than you were, let's say, a year ago, given that the debasement has continued to happen, as you see it, for, for fiat currency, and yet gold has uh, actually you know, gone down um, and has not exploded higher, nowhere close to, to Bitcoin? You know, so are you constructive on gold? And then how are you thinking about, about gold equities? So I would say to a moderate degree, I mean, you really, like I said, from that August 2020 to March 2021 period, it, it made sense to me uh, that gold was... You know, not doing fantastic, uh, but that that's you know that more recent round of weakness starting you know after April May 2021, uh, that's been somewhat surprising to me. Uh, and it's, you know, if you look at say I look at gold versus real rates, but also gold versus money supply, uh, and so you know it's not undervalued compared to money supply, uh, at least the way I measure it. Uh, but it's also you know normally with with real rates as low as they are now, you'd expect gold to have a period of overshooting money supply. In other words, sentiment has not gotten as hot on it as I would have expected. And I do think that that's largely because of these you know Bitcoin inflows uh, that basically a number of investors uh, that might have otherwise bought gold are buying Bitcoin. And so you have, for example, Michael Saylor when he was analyzing where to you know where to put his half billion dollars in company cash when he was when he was concerned about money supply going up dramatically. Uh, he put into Bitcoin instead of gold. Uh, you have Paul Tudor Jones calling it the fastest horse. Uh, you have Stanley Druckenmiller even kind of you know uh, you know getting on board to some extent. So it, it's achieved a certain level of, of of acknowledgement among both retail investors and large pools of capital uh, that in many ways it, it it serves a similar purpose to gold. Obviously with a much higher volatility, so it's not an identical purpose to gold. Uh, but for people that are very forward looking. Uh, this has been a very attractive asset class that has has kind of overlapped with the pool of investors that might have otherwise wanted to put some of their capital to work in gold or or more of their capital. I believe it's the case, Lynn, that perhaps it was in 2011 that the market cap of GLD, the physical gold ETF, uh, actually eclipsed that of the S&P 500 index, uh, which is shocking because gold, of course, is something of a niche asset class and S&P is like, you know, the biggest stock index in the world. Uh, do you think that we'll ever see that for Bitcoin? One of the advantages of, of Bitcoin is that it's easy to hold outside of an ETF. And so, for example, if you're holding stocks, I mean, obviously you have to hold them through your broker. You can you can hold individual stocks, you can hold ETFs, uh, but you can't you know self custody them in the same way that you can do with say gold or Bitcoin. And so, with Bitcoin, there's obviously a pretty strong uh, preference in the industry to you know at least for large amounts of it to self custody it or to use other sort of you know strong maybe multi signature you know partial custodian situations there are a bunch of different ways to hold it uh, and so it also depends on the type of structures available so you know we've had grayscale Bitcoin trust for a while that that's actually been a, a pretty large fund. Uh, it's reached tens of, of billions of dollars in market capitalization but that's you know despite the fact that it trades over the counter. 
uh, and the fact that it's a trust rather than an ETF, which comes with some issues where it, it, its price doesn't necessarily directly follow its net asset value. Uh, now that we're seeing the launch of Bitcoin futures ETFs, uh, that's certainly interesting. They're, they're attracting a lot of the capital in, the, in these first couple of days of trading. Uh, but the challenge there is that uh, any sort of futures-based commodity ETF uh, is liable you know, to diverge from the underlying asset as well. Uh, and so you know, there, there are other countries like Canada that do have spot Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, and I think that would be a better product uh, overall than what we're seeing out of the futures-based ones. And I think that that could attract a pretty large amount of capital. We still have, you know, for example, RIAs and 401ks are still you know, nearly absent from the Bitcoin space. You could start to see allocations in those pools of capital towards it over time. Uh, but overall, you know, I think a large portion of Bitcoin's market capitalization is going to remain outside of the, you know, the financial system and is going to remain in, in, you know, either dedicated custodians or self-custody or in some ways a combination of both, like collaborative custody. What are your thoughts on the energy market right now, which is absolutely on fire? WTI, Western Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, is now above $80, very high. The oil sector is doing well. Thermal coal, coal prices are, are setting new record. Natural gas is exploding higher, uh, particularly in Europe. You've been a bull on the sector for some time. Are you, uh, how are you, how are you viewing this you know, renewed strength in the energy sector? So I would, I would kind of separate it into time frames. Uh, so I'm still structurally bullish uh, long term on energy and energy producers and transporters. Uh, and so I, I'm, for lack of a better term, hodling energy uh, equities. Uh, and if you look at, you know, they've been hot recently, but if you look at a very long term chart, many of them are still in very long bear markets. Many of them are still cheap compared to their underlying commodity that they produce. And so I'm still very long term bullish on energy. I think looking back many years from now, this will, this will still have been an attractive entry point. Uh, but if I if I zoom in a little bit closer, when I start to see, you know, magazine uh, headlines, you know, ha have the energy crisis on the front cover. When I start to see parabolas happen in, in say, European natural gas or, or, or coal uh, due to China shortages, I do get a little concerned at how consensus that trade can become in the near term. So my view isn't, you know, I'm not selling anything, but I'm I maybe pounding the table on the trade a little bit less than I was back when it was a, it was a lonely trade. Uh, and so I, I just, you know, I would emphasize that, you know, I think it's I think it's important for investors to maybe manage expectations while still keeping their eye on the fact that I think we're still in structural underinvestment in energy. I also think that, you know, ESG mandates have gotten over their skis where they're, say, repressing uh, and divesting from, uh, say, oil and gas and nuclear even uh, at a time when they didn't get replacements for those things uh, ready either tech, uh, in terms of technology or in terms of infrastructure like grid updates and, and things like that. And so, you know, we, we've taken away what we already had without getting what we want in place. Uh, and so that can cause additional artificial shortages on top of the fact that commodities tend to go through these, you know, roughly 15 year bull bear cycles anyway. So I'm, I'm still structurally bullish on the space for the 2020s decade. And, you know, another chart I would, I would mention is that, you know, if you look at sector distribution in the S&P 500, uh, energy is still near the lowest it's ever been. You know, it's off of its all time lows from like, you know, I think it was 2020. Uh, but it's still historically low overall. And I think that, again, looking back years from now, energy will be a higher percentage of the S&P 500 than it is now. Uh, and then also when you take into account the fact that you get generally higher dividends from that space, meaning that you don't even necessarily need a ton of capital appreciation to do reasonably well, I, I think it's an attractive long-term opportunity. And I would just be, be cautious about getting a little bit over-enthused or over-leveraged on the space. 
Really interesting point about the dividends, Lynn. You like uh, high dividend uh, stocks. Can I ask you why that is the case? Because if you think that inflation is going to uh, be pernicious, you know, maybe you don't want to be paid back in fiat currency. Maybe you want the, the businesses to reinvest that capital to generate more profits. You know, why is it that you like dividend payers so much? I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that if you look at historical you know, inflationary periods, um, especially if you get you know longer end yields pushing up a little bit, but even if you don't necessarily get that, uh, tend, it tends to be that these really highly valued growth stocks uh, tend to you know suffer a little bit more. They're more prone to having their valuations pushed down. Uh, that's that's especially true if yields spike. But it you know even with just say you know inflation being elevated, uh, that can that can push down the valuations in some of those companies. They're basically the equivalent of a very, very long duration bet. It's kind of like buying an even longer duration treasury. Uh, you know, when you're buying, say, these, these you know, long-term SaaS companies or these, these you know, these very futuristic bets. On the other hand, you know, stocks that have more of their, more of their, you know, expected cash flows in the, in the near term tend to do reasonably well uh, in inflationary environments or, or rising yield environments. Uh, and so they, they tend to be dividend payers. They don't necessarily have to be. Um, but another factor is that dividends are a way for the trade to pay itself off, even if investors are slow to agree with you, right? So an example would be if you, you know, back in the 90s, the consensus was that tobacco was going to be on the decline, that, that you know, uh, cigarette stocks were, were dead. Uh, and they actually ended up trouncing the S&P 500 in terms of total returns over the next, you know, 25, 30 years. Uh, and that was because you, you had extraordinarily beaten down valuations with companies that were still very profitable. And so they just kept buying back their cheap shares and paying out large dividends. And so any investor that just kind of held those assets uh, did very, very well, even though you, ne you never necessarily got a higher multiple on, on those companies. Uh, and so I'm kind of viewing energy stocks in the same way that even if large pools of capital are slow to ever reinvest in the space because of VSG mandates and things like that, uh, you can hold these assets and, and in some cases collect two, three, four, five percent dividend yields. Or for the midstream sector, they're pretty sustainable seven or eight percent dividend yields uh, where, you know, you're holding an asset that, you know, I think you can get some upside potential from it. Uh, but you don't even necessarily need a lot of upside potential because you're still getting these dividends. And of course, you, you know, I would just take those dividends and then hold, you know, bank cash or treasures with the with that capital. I would reinvest it back into productive assets buy Bitcoin with it, whatever the case may be, I would, I would cycle those those fiat dividends into other hard assets. Lynn, so that's a lot of uh, plays in your inflation bucket, gold, Bitcoin, commodity producers. What other uh, assets are, are you looking at that benefit from inflation? I'm thinking of maybe other commodity producers like copper or platinum. And then what about the banks? Uh, so overall, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on most commodities long term. Now, they can get they can go through periods of time of getting overheated. So I, I became bullish on copper in mid-2020, uh, and I expected to hold some of those producers for many years. But then they went and, and tripled on me in a very short period of time, and sentiment became extremely bullish on copper. And so I, I trimmed some of those positions. Uh, I do think that, you know, it stabilizes to some extent now. There's, there's been more focus in other areas. Now, we have seen some interesting future copper futures action going on in Europe. And so, you know, overall, I do think that copper is likely a long-term story for 2020s as well. There'll still be periods where it gets, you know, maybe a little bit overdone, uh, but that it's, it's something that, you know, someone could, in my view, just kind of hodl and, and let that play out uh, and, and just not look at it too often. As far as some other metals, I mean, platinum is interesting because, 
you know, there there's pretty tight supply for platinum and platinum group metals. Only unlike unlike say gold and some other commodities, only a handful of, of countries actually produce them. Uh, you know, there's only a few, uh, and so they're they're pretty tight. Now, because we're having a global semiconductor shortage, which is in particular impacting the auto industry, uh, that's reducing auto production, and autos are a big source of demand for platinum group metals. Uh, and so some of those metals are depressed in price, uh, and also their producers have run into headwinds. Now, we are starting to see maybe signs that that's bottoming out. Uh, so, you know, traders can look at those charts and make their own views, but I'm, I'm pretty bullish long-term on platinum group metals from current levels. Uh, Lynn, could, could I actually could I put a chart up uh, right here? And it's a fast chart of uh, a particular platinum producer, that of uh, Sibanye. Uh, what do these lines? I've seen, you know, I've read read your report, so I've seen a lot of these things. But can you just tell us what the different lines are and explain why they're important? Yeah. So the black line is the share price. Uh, the white lines represent dividends that they're paying out, uh, and the the blue is the um, you know the average price to earnings ratio uh, for that stock historically. Uh, and orange is is what it would be if it was at 15, if that price to earnings ratio would be at 15. Uh, and so those, you know, it's always trickier with commodity. Uh, so it's not this is actually not necessarily the clearest fast graph to kind of show how I use these. But essentially, I look for big decouplings uh, between uh, the stock price and the underlying earnings, the underlying dividends. And so basically, what this shows is that you know the market has been correctly concerned about you know the, this parabolic increase in their profits not necessarily continuing. Is you know analysts are looking out because uh, this includes you know analyst forward you know consensus expectations in in the lighter green area, and so they're saying that they expect some of this to normalize. Uh, but it's interesting because the stock's already taken that to, into account, and the stock is very very cheap and able to pay very high dividends. Uh, at the current time. And so it's one of those things where if you expect platinum group metals to stabilize and eventually move higher, then a play like this is a rather high risk play, but it's one that, that really could benefit because it's, it's it's already rather cheap, despite the fact that those platinum group metals are maybe still running into some headwinds. Mm, thanks for explaining that, Lynn. I'm tempted to use that as a transition to talk about the platinum coin, but we'll save that for the end when we're talking about uh, the, the deleveraging of the long-term debt cycle. Uh, Lynn, now, so we talked about inflation and all these plays. Now tell us about uh, the dollar. In particular, I'm thinking of a report you wrote um, um, that was about the fraying of the U.S. global reserve uh, currency system, how we've been in a, a dollar system uh, really since you know the end of Bretton Woods. And you think that that system, uh, you know, it's encountered so many challenges, but it's remained strong, remained robust. You think that could roll over and actually the dollar system could, as you say, fray and disintegrate. Tell us about why you, why you think that is. So the short version is I think we're seeing a decentralization of energy pricing uh, longer term. Uh, and so, you know, from 1944 to 1971, we had the Bretton Woods system. You know, currencies around the world were pegged to the dollar, dollars pegged to gold. Uh, now that you know the United States defaulted on that system, uh, we didn't we not really have enough gold to maintain that peg, uh, and so since then currencies became free floating, uh, and you know the United States ran into headwinds associated with oil embargoes and things like that. Uh, but in 1974, the United States made a deal with Saudi Arabia and then eventually other OPEC countries, where they said, okay, only sell your oil in dollars, no matter who's buying it from you. So if it's Europe, if it's Japan, if it's us, doesn't matter. Only sell it in dollars. Uh, and in fact, you know, take those dollars and, and, and preferably use them to buy treasuries and hold them as your reserves. Uh, and then also, you know, in exchange for, for you doing that, you know, the United States would provide protection 
so that they help keep supply chains open, help keep you know relative uh, peace in the Middle East for for countries like Saudi Arabia, and also do you know lucrative arms deals. Uh, and so that's been a system that's been in place now for for you know over 45 years, where Saudi Arabia just only sells their oil in dollars. Uh, and even though I mean now, for example, you know if you look back when that system was started, the United States was maybe 35% of global GDP, we were by far the biggest commodity importer. Uh, and over time, the United States GDP has fallen, you know, more like 20%, uh, even potentially lower, depending on it, exactly how you measure that. China has become the, the world's largest commodity importer for, for most commodities. And the United States has also become somewhat more self-sufficient on oil, so we're no longer Saudi Arabia's biggest customer. You know, we're starting to see, for example, Russia, uh, which is obviously one of the, the largest energy producers, has shown an interest in aggressive de-dollarization uh, and shifting towards euros, gold, yuan, you know, basically other other assets. And so Russia has begun selling their oil in euros, uh, you know, basically as, as part of their diversification strategy. And you see China kind of rolling out its yuan-based oil futures, and then now, of course, shifting into its its central bank digital currency, which can potentially, you know, give it more flexibility in terms of global payments. And so overall, my thesis is that we're going to see, uh, you know, a handful of the top currencies be able to be used to buy oil. Uh, and then we're also, by extension, going to see a somewhat of a diversification in the currencies that, that different countries, uh, you know, use for their foreign exchange reserves. So that the dollar will, will shift from being the world reserve currency to being one of a few regional reserve currencies uh, alongside neutral assets like gold, and if it gets big enough years from now, possibly things like Bitcoin. Before World War II, it was the, the United Kingdom and the pound sterling that was the lender of last resort. Then it became the dollar. Uh, in your new sort of multipolar world, let's call it, where there is no hegemon, what do you think about, you know, who's going to bail, uh, if there's a crisis, who's going to bail it out? Like, let's say, you know, in March 2020, when the dollar spiked, uh, you know, you were very early and very correct in saying, hey, the Fed is extending these swap lines. There actually isn't going to be a massive dollar shortage that's going to cause like a global depression. Uh, if, let's say, in, in March 2020, if the dollar weren't the global hegemon, if the Fed weren't the sort of guarantor of, of global uh, financial stability, what, what, what would have happened if it was China and the euro and the Fed that had to coordinate um, to, to bail the world out? I mean, it's a really good point, but I'll, I would kind of counter by saying that, you know, in that more decentralized world, you'd have less of a specific bottleneck as well. So the conditions that ran up to that dollar spike would be less, uh, in addition to the fact that the ability of one central bank to respond to that spike would also be less. And so both sides of that spike would, would you know, in theory, be lessened. Uh, and so, you know, if you go back to, say, a neutral reserve asset like gold, for example, uh, you know, there's no one that can bail out the system by suddenly creating a ton more gold, but also debt levels don't get as high in that sort of system to begin with generally. It, it generally takes these sort of deliberate policies uh, to build up those debt levels. Uh, and, you know, for the dollar specifically, the United States has been, you know, uh, promoting the usage of its currency, promoting kind of the, you know, getting emerging markets indebted. Uh, and then basically also provide, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're getting them indebted, but then when it starts to break, we, we, we provide them a lifeline to get them just enough, uh, you know, out of the debt to be stable while still being heavily in debt. And so this, this system is kind of, you know, perpetuating itself. It's being managed so that it, it kind of doesn't go towards the breaking points too much, at least for, for a majority of countries. Occasionally one country breaks here and there, uh, you know, whenever the dollar gets too strong. And so overall, I would say that, you know, a, a more decentralized system 
in the longer run would be a more stable system uh, because in addition to having you know no single central bank being able to respond to it, there would also be no single bottleneck quite as big as the current system, which is that we have all this dollar-denominated debt in the world relative to the amount of dollar cash flows and, and, the, and the size of the U.S. economy. Mm. And, and what are you seeing as the currencies that would form this multipolar uh, hegemon, let's call it? Would it be you know the euro, the yuan, uh, the dollar? And also, what would the impact be if the dollar was dumped a little bit? Would that be bearish for the dollar against the euro and where the euro appreciate against everything else? So those three currencies what you, that you mentioned are the ones we're seeing signs for. So Russia's shown an interest in, in selling oil and euros. We've also seen, if you look at uh, trade between China and Russia, it has rapidly de-dollarized over the past three years, and the euro has been the biggest beneficiary, even though obviously the euro is neither of their currencies. You know, we still haven't seen a lot of action out of out of China's currency, uh, but I do think that the that the you know the launch of their central bank digital currency could accelerate that at least among some of their local peers. You know, Russia, uh, as well as you know the connections they have with with some African nations in terms of lending. Uh, you know, I think that's something to watch as well. Now. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean it depends on, on the country what they want to hold it in after they do a medium of exchange. And so Russia's shown a tendency to want to hold their assets in, in gold, for example, uh, at least at least a, a good chunk of their foreign exchange reserves. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're seeing that 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 diversification. So that can mean, for example, that foreign central banks buy less treasuries or fewer treasuries than they did, say, in, in decades prior. Uh, and so that forces the United States to fund itself. Uh, either through private sector or through the Fed. Uh, and so we're seeing, for example, that the Fed now holds more treasuries than all foreign central banks combined. And it's possible that, you know, if we, if we go out longer, that the Fed will hold more treasuries than the whole, you know, international sector combined, private and public. But right now, the Fed has already, you know, surpassed, you know, official holdings, foreign central banks in terms of holding treasuries. So we're basically eating our own cooking now. Yeah, Lynn, I, that's actually so fascinating because I, w while you were talking, I was reading your report where you had, have this chart of the Fed eating their own cooking, and it didn't look like they were. It was published in December second of twenty twenty. At that time, I don't, the Fed was the biggest holder of uh, treasuries, but not bigger than all other central banks combined. So since December, when you've written that, it's gotten far, far worse. They're they're eating a lot of their own cooking, more of their own cooking than anyone else. Well, in terms of, I mean, it's one of those things where if you look at you know, different countries, uh, the Fed still has, you know, relatively low percent, like it's the, the central bank assets as a percentage of its GDP are still on the lower side compared to, say, Japan or Europe. Uh, you know, we had these periods where we're catching up uh, to some extent. And so the way I describe it is that the United States is, is you know, we are running the, the biggest, say, fiscal deficits among our large peers. That's kind of our key difference. And we're also, we, we have these structural trade deficits they don't have. I think those are the parts where the United States kind of stands out as problematic. Uh, whereas the the fact that you know we're eating our own cooking mainly makes the United States just like these other countries rather than standing apart. So it, it kind of fits in that thesis where the United States dollar becomes a regional reserve currency uh, rather than like the world reserve currency. It, it starts to look more and more like some of these other large developed you know developed market currencies. Talk to us about the net international investment position of the US, it's deeply negative because so many foreigners want dollar-denominated assets. Do you think that will change? And uh, do you ever see the US becoming a net creditor nation or a net debtor nation? Or is that like, you know, hundreds of years away? I don't know about hundreds, but I, you know, that, that certainly takes a long time to play out. 
what I'm looking more is to see if that if, if our net international investment position stops decreasing as a percentage of our GDP starts stabilizing and then maybe turning up from that low base. Uh, and so I'm kind of watching that pretty closely. So for people that aren't familiar, a country's net international investment position is a measure of how much foreign assets that country owns minus uh, how much of their assets are owned by foreigners. And so, for example, Japan is a very large creditor nation. They have a positive net international investment position, which means that, uh, you know, Japanese uh, households, companies, government, uh, they own a lot of, you know, assets around the world. They own, you know, uh, treasuries, uh, you know, U.S. treasuries. They own U.S. stocks. They own European stocks. They own companies uh, in Europe. They own companies in the United States. They own real estate. Uh, and, and so they own more foreign assets and they have a large inflow of, of dividends and interest and, and other sources of income from those assets. And so they're a creditor nation. On the other hand, the United States is a debtor nation. So we have a deeply negative net international investment position, meaning that, you know, because we've run these structural trade deficits, uh, you know, so, you know, go back to Japan for a second, because they ran st structural trade surpluses, they, they got all these dollars and other currencies flowing into them. And they use those to buy those foreign assets. Whereas the United States on the opposite side, we're, we're running these structural trade deficits. We're sending dollars out to the rest of the world. The rest of the world's using those dollars to buy our assets. And so we're basically selling them, you know, parts of our equity base, parts of our real estate market, parts of our government debt. They're increasingly becoming owners of U.S. assets uh, more so than we own foreign assets. Uh, and so that, that, you know, eventually becomes very, very, you know, uh, deeply negative, uh, and so the United States is one of the it, we're the weakest in absolute sense. We have the, we have the lowest absolute number of you know dollars in terms of net international investment position, but also as a percentage of GDP, we're we're toward the bottom of the pack in terms of of large markets. Uh, and so a lot of capitals flowed into the United States, which sounds good, and in some ways it is, but it also means that you know foreigners are increasing our our creditors, uh, and so. Uh, we, that basically has led to a lot of wealth concentration in the United States, these structural trade deficits. And I think we're starting to see a political appetite for that to reverse. So basically, the United States has had a lot of costs associated with maintaining the system. Basically, in order for all global energy to be priced in dollars, the United States had to make sure that a lot of dollars got out there. Uh, and so that's part of why we've run these structural trade deficits. So we basically sacrificed our manufacturing base. We sacrificed some of our domestic economic vibrancy in order to maintain America, the empire, in order to maintain our military reach, in order to maintain our ability to sanction countries on the world, we basically, you know, sacrifice what we have locally to try to extend our reach globally. And I think that's that started to reverse. I think, you know, uh, you know, pulling out of the Middle East militarily to some extent is showing kind of that that reversal. Uh, the the willingness to heavily stimulate our our local domestic economy is showing some of that reversal. Uh, the indifference of the foreign market towards buying U.S. treasuries is, is showing that reversal. I think that's like, a, you know, I described it as like a container ship turning very, very slowly where this kind of, you know, major network effect doesn't just change overnight. Uh, but I do think we're seeing signs that it's kind of straining its, you know, its limitations and starting to being reversed uh, both by the foreign sector and by Americans as well. Yeah, right. When you say the foreign sector, it's, it's the focus of countries like China to say, hey, we want to have a vibrant consumer economy. We're not just going to create things for the U.S. We want our own citizens to, to buy things as well. Lynn, I want to put up another chart, which I just love. It's from your Global uh, Opportunities Report, I believe, in uh, 2021. And it shows the dollar-denominated debt and F foreign exchange reserves, or FX reserves, of major emerging market countries. The uh, orange bar being the reserves of foreign currencies, 
and the blue bar being the debt denominated in GDP. Both figures are as a percentage of GDP. Can you explain why the countries on the right are more uh, vulnerable to a currency crisis and to a dollar squeeze and why the countries on the left are much less vulnerable to it. And, and you know, maybe you can compare it to like the 1997 currencies crisis or, or whatever. And then uh, then we can move on to China, which I which I know you have a lot of thoughts about. So over the past 50 years, because, you know, the dollar has been the global reserve currency, a lot of funding happens in dollars. And so let's say an emerging market like Argentina wants to grow. Uh, you know, their country or their companies might want to raise capital and foreign creditors can do that, but they will often do, do it in dollars uh, so that they have more insurances that they know what that currency is going to be worth. And and so basically countries that don't have a long track record with their own currency are forced to borrow in a currency that they, they don't control. Uh, and so that can work well if the, if the country is very productive uh, and uses that capital very wisely to build up, you know, a vibrant economy. Like let's say Taiwan, for example, became a, a world's leading electronic and semiconductor producer. Uh, China did it very well, um, and, and whereas you know Malaysia did it very well, South Korea did it well, but other other areas have have, have not used that capital as wisely or have run into to situations they couldn't control. And so countries that have a lot of uh, you know dollar-based liabilities are vulnerable to if the dollar strengthens relative to the foreign relative to their own currency. Uh, then their government or their businesses can run into default risk or otherwise be squeezed by the value of their debts increasing relative to their local cash flows. Uh, and but that can be offset by the fact that you know these countries can, you know, during good times, they can they can collect a lot of dollars and hold large uh, foreign exchange reserves so that if they really need it, uh, they can stabilize their currencies by selling some of those reserves or supplying those reserves, uh, you know, to their domestic entities that need them. And so what I look for is, you know, you know, some emerging markets have a very large amount of reserves relative to their dollar-denominated debts, and so they are more protected, all else being equal. It's not the only variable to monitor, but it, you know, all else being equal, they're more protected against an acute currency devaluation or default risk compared to emerging markets that have a lot of uh, foreign exchange reserves relative to their uh, uh, dollar-based liabilities. So if you look at certain uh, countries like Argentina or Turkey, that obviously have had more currency headwinds. It's in large part because they have these dollar-denominated debts, uh, but they don't have very high dollar-denominated you know, foreign exchange reserves, and so they're more vulnerable uh, to that happening. Whereas you know, countries like, say, South South Korea or Russia or Taiwan, uh, you know, or Saudi Arabia, they have very high reserves relative to their dollar-based liabilities at least according to the, the Bank for International Settlements. And so they, they're somewhat less exposed uh, to a strengthening dollar uh, you know, than some of their weaker counterparts. Mm. And I know China is on that as, as well. They have a lot of foreign exchange reserves relative to their dollar debt. China does not have a lot of dollar-denominated debt at all, which I actually didn't know before I started digging into this uh, when I was researching Evergrande. You know, everyone says Evergrande has a $300 billion liability. I actually think it's, it's bigger, something like $400 billion, but it's not denominated in dollars. Only you know a, a fraction of that is in dollars. Most of, most of it is in yuan. And that's why it's really interesting, Lynn, that the yuan has actually strengthened against the dollar uh, over the past month as China has uh, endured enormous headwinds. Yeah, one of the, so one of the ways to look at it is China has large dollar-based debts in absolute terms. Obviously, it's a very big market, and so it's it's a very large number. Uh, but it is relatively small compared to the size of their GDP, and compared to the size of their assets. Now, 
the euro dollar market in general is rather opaque. Uh, so these aren't perfect estimates. Uh, these are from the BIS. And so, you know, o overall, there are concerns that basically we don't know the full extent of dollar liabilities out there or dollar assets, you know, to be fair. And so there's still kind of, you know, concerns. But in the in the grand scheme of things, China is not the worst on the list compared to some of the others. Yeah, that's really interesting. Lynn, what is your outlook on the Chinese equity market? It is an emerging market. It is, you know, something like 30% of uh, the emerging market index it used to be much bigger, something like 40%. It has uh, encountered a, a lot of pain for, for equities in Chinese uh, investors. So let's say the K-Web, the, the technology index uh, is down something like 50% um, since its highs in February. Uh, the real estate sector is at the epicenter. It's the eye of the storm of all this chaos. Evergrande and other uh, builders such as Fantasia, you know, defaulting on, on bonds. The real estate sector, very frothy. Uh, it's early stages in terms of the deleveraging, de de most likely. But Lynn, also the technology stocks that you are very interested in. Uh, a lot of very intelligent investors agree with you that JD.com, Alibaba, Tencent are actually pristine holdings, uh, and they have phenomenal businesses um, such as Charlie Munger. So tell us, tell us your outlook on China, and um, how, you, how, how are you thinking about playing this? Do you think that the, the it's worth catching the falling knife? I, I basically, you know, decided to reduce my risk in a couple of ways. One is I diversify my emerging market holdings so that I, I I overweight some of the others, like say Russia or India to some extent, compared to just holding say emerging market indices. Uh, and then two, because I was concerned about Chinese real estate debt in particular, uh, within my Chinese holdings, I, I shifted more towards those internet companies. Uh, so that, that first part, you know, protected me pretty well. The second part's been headwinds because the, the administration there, the CCP, has gone after some of those internet companies. So even though they're not exposed to the same real estate issues, they've had their own set of headwinds to deal with. And so in many ways, they've done just as poorly. And we have seen signs of bottoming. So for example, Tencent uh, and JD, uh, have a bottom in place uh, in terms of price from a couple months ago, and then Alibaba, you know, they 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 hit lower lows in our, in early October, but they're showing some signs of bottoming as well. And so I don't know for sure that that is the bottom, right? There's certainly major tail risk associated with owning any of these companies, and I think investors have to be careful about their position sizes. That's why I wouldn't necessarily call them pristine, even if they do have say good good business models and good balance sheets. Uh, basically, the, the lack of pristineness comes from the legal issues that you, you can face, the jurisdictional issues you can face uh, with them, right? So who who in the world wants to own Chinese stocks other than maybe Charlie Munger, right? So he, you know, he's a big Alibaba bull. Uh, but other than that, you know, there's there's been very little interest globally in wanting to own Chinese assets for good reason. Uh, but things often bottom on bad news and, and top on good news, ironically. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's an interesting contrarian trade that people can look at. Uh, and then you have that clear invalidation point based on the on the recent lows. Uh, but I would just caution investors to make sure they manage their position size because you do have those those big jurisdictional and uh, legal uh, risks associated with those investments. So if I if, if I were to ask you, Lynn, which emerging market countries are you most constructive on? Would China not be in your top five, or, or would it? I'm structurally pretty bullish on Russia, uh, given my structural views on energy uh, and the low valuations uh, there. Uh, I think Mexico is pretty interesting. I think that you know Southeast Asia is pretty interesting as well. Some of those those countries, and so I do think that there are pockets out there that are that are quite interesting. And China has a lot of issues, but you know it basically also has as you know very low sentiment, which which makes it interesting from a contrarian standpoint. Where something like India is more expensive, more consensus, uh, but still I think has long runway ahead as well. 
Mm. Uh, Lynn, in your global report, you rank different countries by the level of debt they have, government, household, corporate, by their valuations of their equity markets, by their trade balances, by, by their exports. Which would you say, how would you rank them in terms of actually predicting uh, success? You know, like if, if a country has a very, very low valuation, is that something that um, draw, you know, draws your attention versus, you know, to what degree does it really matter if, if the country exports a lot or doesn't export a lot? So they matter in different ways. I mean, there is a, there has been a study by Meb Faber, uh, and he's repeated a couple of times over the past few years, that shows if you just did, if you looked at nothing but valuation. So if you just if you just looked at CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratios, uh, from markets around the world, and if if every year you just bought the 25 cheapest ones, uh, you historically did very very well. Um, and uh, you know he didn't do well every year, um, but uh, over that say I think he had a 25 year study period. Uh, you did quite well with that strategy. Uh, and that's not, not necessarily saying that'll play out in the future, uh, but it is an interesting data point. So it, basically, if you were to make a case for just one variable, it would be valuation. You want to buy things that no one, no one else wants to buy. And as long as you're sufficiently diversified, you know, you might have one of those go to zero, right? So you might, you might have one of those countries turn to Venezuela or, you know, turn to Russia in the 1920s, whatever the case may be, you can, you can have a total loss in some of those, those countries. Uh, but if you have a sufficient basket of them, uh, you know, you're basically doing that constant mean reversion and valuation trade. Uh, now, I, I personally like to look at a few areas of quality. So I'm not just necessarily buying what's cheap. I'm also looking at, you know, tail risk associated with currency and, and other things like that. And so I try to also look at what is their sector distribution of their of their companies, right? So it's not just valuation, it's, it's sector adjusted valuation. Uh, then I also look at things like, you know, the, the risk of a major currency issue. Like we previously discussed, you know, how much reserves do they have relative to debts? Uh, you know, what what is their trade deficit, trade surplus situation? Uh, basically, are they prone to a currency issue? That can also tilt your interest towards, say, you know, like let's say you're bullish on a on a country, but you're bearish on that country's currency. Well, then you might want to look at exporters in that country, because uh, then you get the best of both worlds. You know, their their revenue is going to be denominated in their in foreign currencies, and their expenses are in local currencies. And if you're overall, you know, reasonably constructive on that country, except for the currency, then those are a good place to be. So you can use those to kind of fine tune maybe what you want to invest in those countries. Basically, I make it so that my analysis can apply to a bunch of different investors that can each find something in that report that might might you know suit the way that they invest. Lynn, uh, we've talked about so many topics. Now I think let's really get to the core of your thesis. Let's really get in the weeds. Let's talk financial repression. Let's talk 1940s. Let's talk negative real yields. Uh, let's talk fiscal dominance. Uh, why is this current era like the 1940s and not the 1970s? Why will central banks be unwilling to uh, uh, fight inflation? And why are they going to have to actually do it through uh, fiscal repression or financial repression? So the short version is that because there's a lot of a uh, very, very high level of public debt to GDP, in developed markets, they have a lot less flexibility to raise rates uh, in the way that they could do in the 1970s. Uh, and so, if we take a step back, if we look at, say, the short-term business cycle, uh, you know, you you have, you know, say, a five to ten-year business cycle, debt builds up in the system, and you know, you, you eventually run into a recession, right? It, it just basically, there could be malinvestment, there could be external catalyst, there could be over enthusiasm, whatever the case may be. Eventually, you have a deleveraging event, and you have a recession. Uh, and so debt as a percentage of GDP goes down, um, uh, but you know then policymakers step in, they cut interest rates, they stimulate, uh, and they try to short circuit that that correction. 
And so what we've done is that you generally have a, a cycle where debt as a percentage of GDP does not go down all the way to where it started. Uh, and instead, you know, basically just goes down part of the way and then starts building up again. And so when you string multiple of those business cycles together, uh, you end up getting higher and higher uh, debt as a percentage of GDP, like higher highs and higher lows. And you get lower and lower interest rates, uh, like lower lows and lower highs uh, until you run into the zero bound. Uh, while debts are extraordinarily high. You know, Ray Dalio would call that the long-term debt cycle. Uh, and so when that happens, uh, central banks have much fewer options. They start doing asset purchases, and eventually even those not become not enough anymore. Uh, and then you have the, the federal government or the, the you know, whatever, the, whatever country it might be, the sovereign entity runs large fiscal deficits, basically just helicopter money, uh, and the, the central bank finances those bonds uh, and basically helps hold yields low, even if inflation runs pretty hot. And so if you look at the 1940s, for example, uh, you know, we, we had a, a long period of stagnation in the 30s uh, in many countries, including the United States. Uh, and But because you had the rising populism, because you had the wars of the 1940s, uh, governments were forced to spend a lot of money, raise their, their debt to GDP significantly. But because of those high debts, you know, they, they, they were not able to raised interest rates to quell the inflation that those debt, that those massive fiscal expenditures caused. And so you had financial pressure, basically held rates low, even though inflation was hot. And therefore, if you were holding cash or treasury bonds, uh, you got killed on an inflation adjusted basis over the course of that decade. And so overall, in many ways, I'm in my framework, the 2020s look a lot like the 1940s in terms of fiscal monetary policy. Now, there are still some differences. There are different demographics. We have different technology. Uh, the United States is a debtor nation rather than a creditor nation. So in some ways, we actually look more like the United Kingdom looked in the 1940s. Um, and so there are differences. It's not like an apples-to-apples apples comparison exactly. But at least in terms of that fiscal and monetary policy mix and that long-term debt cycle, uh, in many ways, the 1940s give us a lot of lessons uh, for what we might go through. And so a lot of people have been surprised by what we've seen in, in, the 20, in 2020 and 2021 in terms of the, the scale of the fiscal stimulus, uh, the, the amount of inflation we've had, and the disconnect between inflation and yields. Whereas anyone who's, who is you know, going into this period, familiar with that period in time, uh, might have found some of that less surprising. And so that, that's, that's the, you know, what I find valuable from studying that period in history. Lynn, you referenced Ray Dalio. I believe he's cited four ways that uh, countries or, or entities can deleverage from a long-term debt cycle. The first is austerity or cutting spending. The second is a default on the debt or some sort of debt jubilee. The third is redistribution of wealth by taxing the wealthy and using that to, to uh, fund the, the deficit. And the fourth one is inflation. My question to you is, Lynn, in your paper, you cited another study that 51 of 52 countries uh, had effectively defaulted on their debt, uh, either by inflation or deflation. The one that hadn't is Japan. So my question is, of the 51, how many of them did it via inflation, via a true default, via wealth distribution? And then what can we learn from Japan, if any? What did what did uh, Japan do that the other 51 countries uh, did wrong? So the majority of them did so through inflation, where basically you, you, you had much higher inflation relative to yields. Now, some of those were hyperinflation. Other ones were just moderate inflation that was well above the yields. And so you lost money on a real basis if you were a holder of, the, of, of that debt. Uh, and whereas emerging markets, you know, or, or other countries like like Weimar uh, Republic that that you know owe liabilities and currencies they can't print, they're more prone to nominal default. 
So that's kind of the big difference between those two. As far as Japan, what made them somewhat different is they, you know, as I mentioned before, they're they're like a very large creditor nation, and so they went into that stagnation, uh, you know, as a very, you know, they ha they had such a strong set of decades, and they built up such a reserve. Uh, that it's kind of like going into retirement, but having saved millions of dollars from your time working. And so they, they were kind of relying on that nest egg they built up. Uh, and so, you know, they ran into issues and they did a ton of quantitative easing. They effectively monetized very large portions of the debt. Uh, but, you know, because they had that constant source of, of foreign income, it helped keep them more stable than they might have otherwise been. In addition, you had, you know, a set of policies in place so that they have among the lowest wealth concentration out of out of developed countries. Uh, they have rather high levels of, of, say, you know, public harmony, you can call it. So no country is, is you know, uh, obviously gets along on everything. But if you if you measure populism or, or partisanship in different ways, Japan is less, say, polarized than the United States and, and, and some other countries. And so that combination has, has kind of allowed them to weather that storm. In addition, I would also say it's a matter of, of kind of luck and timing where the, the latter half of that period that they've gone through, the whole 2010s decade, was in a period of commodity abundance. Uh, and so that, that's been a disinflationary pressure along with globalization and other forces that have helped keep inflation lower than normal. Uh, and so, you know, that, that combination has been very beneficial to them. Uh, now we're starting to see here in 2021 that Japan's running into some headwinds because they're a big energy importer and energy costs have gone up a lot. So we'll see if that carries into the 2020s, uh, you know, deeper into the 2020s or not. Um, so I, I would say going forward, I'd be less, you know, calm about, uh, you know, say, you know, holding Japanese government bonds than investors might have been over the past 15 years or so. Uh, but either way, basically, it, the, the study shows that you know you're, you're, the probabilities of success when you're holding government paper with debt as a percentage of GDP as high as it is now tends not to be very high. You know you basically have limited upside but considerable downside unless you get one of those rare exceptions like Japan combined with you know commodity abundance combined with globalization and a bunch of tailwinds in your favor. Lynn, you've got if some fantastic charts that we have to get to before we end. Um, this one uh, really gives a, a great illustration of your point. The blue line is U.S. corporate debt. That's percentage of GDP, yes. The blue line is corporate debt as a percentage of GDP, and the red line is interest rates. Yeah, so uh, the way to keep the, the wheels spinning is to have debt increase, the blue line, or to have the red line, interest rates, decrease. But you know, it looks on this chart, at least the way it's figured, that the blue line can't really go a lot higher, and the interest rate can't really go a lot lower because we're at what 0 0.06 for the for the federal funds rate so um you know can the red line go lower can we have negative rates and can the blue line go even higher so europe showed for example that you can have um you know mildly negative rates to some extent especially if you're you know if you're running current account surpluses if you're more deflationary than some of your peers uh you can pull that off for a period of time uh, but you can't just go deeper and deeper and deeper into negative territory because eventually the banking system starts falling apart. Uh, eventually, people will, uh, you know, basically pull their money out and hoard cash if it means, you know, having a zero rate over, over, you know, say a negative four percent interest rate or something like that. Uh, and so, 
you know, down to maybe negative 1%, they can go, but it's, it's much harder to go lower than that. So I would say that once you reach roughly the zero bound, that lever starts to become less and less available to central bankers, and they start to turn into, you know, some more inflationary aspects like, like fiscal stimulus uh, and these other policies that they tend to turn to in those types of environments when they, when they run out of that room. Mm. Uh, well, I actually, so definitely the red line, it's very tough for it to go lower than zero. Um, and it is very uh, unlikely that it will be super productive. What about the blue line? Can the blue line go higher? Um, I'm looking at another chart that you have of, of countries ranked by debt. And the U.S.'s corporate debt as a percentage of GDP is somewhat high, but it's actually, you know, a fraction of what uh, China's is, right? It certainly can go higher. Um, you know, whether or not it will go higher, I think is a different question. Uh, you never want to say that something is the absolute top, uh, especially when you, we can identify other areas. Like, for example, you know, Japanese, say, public debt as a percentage of GDP certainly has gone higher than the U.S., uh, you know, say, government debt to GDP. And China's corporate debt has certainly gone higher than the United States' corporate debt. Uh, but when you do reach the zero bound, uh, you start to run into headwinds uh, going higher, at least in terms of private debt. And so if you look at Japan again over the past several decades, they've, you know, they've kind of transform some of that private debt into public debt that that's kind of that conversion they've gone through and so that's the type of thing you generally start to see when you reach that zero bound where it gets harder for private debt to keep going up it might even go down and so a lot of that starts transferring to the public sector uh, based on you know different fiscal policies that they might do so Lynn, a final chart i want to put up for you is such a great one it is the uh, view of different devaluations you say that the devaluation uh, of the 1930s was non-inflationary. Of the 1940s, it was inflationary. The devaluation of after 2008 and the green bar over here, the green circle, was uh, non-inflationary. In this red bar, why do you think that this will prove to be inflationary? Mainly because you're getting very large fiscal deficits. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically driving up broad money supply at a much quicker rate, uh, and then you throw in commodity shortages and 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 periods of deglobalization, uh, and so. During the 1930s and the 2010s, you had what I referred to as a non-inflationary devaluation because you had commodity abundance, uh, you had economic stagnation in, in relative terms, uh, and so you had, you know, in the in 1930s they devalued the dollar relative to gold. In the in the 2010s, you did quantitative easing, uh, but that did not manifest in in dramatically high, say, CPI. Uh, it might have manifested in asset prices going back up, but not necessarily commodity prices and things like that. However, when you when you work that off for a full decade, uh, and then you enter a period of, of commodity scarcity, and things get bad enough, the government start doing those large fiscal uh, spending programs. Uh, you get a more inflationary type of environment, and then they're forced to hold yields low because the debt's so high. Uh, and so, and there's a couple of different ways that they can do that. That can be either uh, you know more or less uh, you know inflationary than others. Uh, but it basically, the, the odds start to go up dramatically of an inflationary environment. And so that chart, for example, predated what we have in 2021. I put that chart back together in, in 2020. And so we have seen here in 2021 that some of those inflationary uh, aspects have started to play out. Yeah, definitely. So that the gray bar charts, bars, are the deficit. So you, you forecast that the uh, deficit spending will continue to be uh, robust. And then tie that in a nice bow um, in terms of the fiscal dominance, going to monetary dominance and then going to fiscal dominance. So during that time when we're not near the zero bound, and and so, you know, if you look back, say, towards the, the, the say, the, you know, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, uh, we had what I refer to as monetary dominance. 
which is basically that there's you know central bankers have more power. Uh, they, basically, they're more in control of doing things. They can slow down the economy by raising r rates, um, and and they don't need to do a lot of other stimulus. Whereas once you get down to the zero bound. Uh, and you have these kind of, uh, say, say, additional inflationary pressures, the central bank kind of runs out of tools at that point, and instead it becomes more about fiscal spending. And then the central bank just becomes relegated to the secondary role of financing that fiscal spending. Uh, and so that's the that's where I characterize us being in now, is that we have a fiscal-driven environment. How much inflation we have, and, and to the extent that we'll have economic slowdowns, will be in part tied to fiscal spending taking a break, cooling off, for example, or heating back up. A lot of decisions are going to be focused more on what, say, Congress does in the United States or what other political bodies do in other countries versus just what their central banks do. So we're in that more fiscal-oriented type of environment. Lynn, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you so much. Uh, as I said in the beginning, I couldn't have thought of a you know better guest uh, to be my first interviewee. It's been an absolute honor, pleasure, like it normally is. Uh, really quickly, Lynn, can, you were just in Egypt uh, on vacation. And I understand that you actually are interested, became interested in Egypt as an investment. Uh, can you just really quickly give us a little, a little taste, a hint of that? Yeah, so you know, I just got back from there for a full month, and I, I plan on writing a, a piece on that. So Egypt, obviously, you know, it's like a frontier market. It's not even fully considered an emerging market. Uh, and you have kind of currency risk there. You have a lot of uh, political risk there. Uh, but it's also one of the cheapest markets in the world and has an interesting real estate market. So it's something I plan on touching on in an upcoming piece. Mm. Well, I look forward to reading it as I uh, look forward to reading all of your work. Uh, thank you, uh, Lynn, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Definitely follow Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. Follow Blockworks at Blockworks underscore. And you know, might, might want to give me a follow at JackFarley96. Uh, Lynn, thank you again, and we'll be in touch. Yep, thanks for having me.